All right, so uh, today we've got a field trip. We're gonna we're gonna be flying out from our home base at uh, Cedars Charlie Sierra Sierra Three, and uh, heading on a flight to uh, basically the shrine of uh, of aviation in this part of the world, uh, which is the National Aviation and Space Museum in Ottawa. Um, we try to make this flight. Uh, at least once a year to go there and, and just uh, just soak it all up the history. So today is a bit special though because we are taking it's the first time we're going to be taking our uh, our our own Cessna 172 uh, Foxtrot Sierra Sierra Foxtrot, and uh, we're going to be flying to uh, Rockcliffe, which is the um, aerodrome that's uh, that the museum is connected to. It's a former RCAF base. So we'll talk more about that afterwards. But uh, the weather is uh, beautiful today. We've checked the weather. Uh, we've planned our flight on uh, on ForeFlight. We've uh, filed our flight plan, and so all uh, all that's left to do at this moment is to go on out, do our do our walk around, uh, kick the tires, and start the fires and. Uh, and get, it, get into the air, and we'll be bringing you along with us this time. Ah, the joys of flying in Canada in the winter. Well, it's more of a spring day today in March, but there's still snow on the ground. It's still about minus 6 Celsius, and so uh, we had to make sure that our airplane was uh, ready to go. We uh, took off the engine cover, and the... Uh, the, uh, the covers on the, the windscreens, checked the oil, checked the fuel, made sure that our heaters had uh, had done their job overnight of keeping our engine nice and toasty warm because uh, light gen general aviation aircraft uh, don't particularly like it, uh, like the cold, so we have to make sure they're nice and warm. So uh, my son Liam actually is right now doing the pre-start within the aircraft and then he's gonna pull out and we'll uh, park our car. There we go. And then I'll park the car in the spot. And uh, then we'll be, uh, we'll, uh, we'll be off to Ottawa. Taxi out to runway 25 at Cedars, um, do our final checks, turn on our landing light, uh, turn on our transponder, and we're ready to go. serenely over these still snow-covered fields of southern Quebec. Over to our right is the ghost airfield of St. Eugène, Ontario. Uh, this was actually number 13 elementary flying school 
of the British Commonwealth Trading Plan. And although it no longer exists, in summertime when you fly over it, you can actually see the ghostly outline of the runways and uh, the apron uh, in the farmer's fields that are there now. Here's a quote I found about St. Eugene by Bob Kirkpatrick, an American pilot who did his elementary training there and ended up flying mosquitoes during the war. Kirkpatrick recalled, I don't remember much about St. Eugene other than being kept very busy, flying and keeping warm, and of course the deep snow. There were difficulties navigating, for in winter everything was black or white and looked the same. Well Bob, it's the same now, but we've got GPS to help us out. A little bit further along, we fly over another aerodrome, uh, which is uh, kind of a twin to St. Eugene. This is Pendleton, Ontario which was number 10 elementary flying training school for the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Unlike St. Eugene, this uh, aerodrome still exists. It still has the familiar triangular runway layout. It still has the original Second World War hangar there. Uh, it's always been a flying checkpoint for me. I've never landed there, but at some point we should land and check it out. It's mainly used for gliding now. So in less than an hour we arrive in, in Ottawa, more specifically Rockcliffe uh, Aerodrome, which actually used to be a, an Air Force base, uh, but is now just a civilian airport. To our left is the large triangular museum hangars, and to our right the uh, airstrip, uh, which is right beside the beautiful Ottawa River. Uh, to the north of that is the lovely Gatineau Hills in Quebec. We, uh, we overfly the, uh, the airfield uh, for a right-hand circuit for runway 27 and Liam sets the aircraft down nicely and we taxi to a stop. So here we here we are. We're uh, we're at the museum. We've come in. We've seen the the upside down snowbird uh, just in the in the entrance. And uh, then once we got our ticket scanned, uh, we we've come in to see the silver dart. So definitely not a warbird, but uh, definitely a historic bird. One of the uh, well, one of the first airplanes ever, and the the first one to fly in Canada. So uh, took off from the ice. Um, Bedeck, uh, Nova Scotia, right? Um, and it took off from the ice because there were no runways. Because why would you have a runway when you don't have any airplanes yet, right? Okay, now here we got the Sopwith Camel. World War I fighter. World War One. We got one gun shooting through the uh, through the prop disc, so it would have to have uh, the gearing in order to uh, to prevent you from shooting your own prop off. 
and looks like another gun, a Lewis gun on top, shooting over top of the disc. Of course, you couldn't put anything on the wings in these kind of uh, aircraft. The thing I always notice here is the shock absorbers. You see the shock absorbers beside the wing there, or not beside the, the wheels? You got uh, bungee, bungee cords. Yeah, that's what the uh, that's what it was. Yeah, and uh, wood. Eh? Now, is this a radial engine or a rotary engine? Uh, power plant rotary. So that means all those cylinders turn along with the prop. So the the cylinders turn. It's uh, it was. It really led to a lot of um, gyroscopic precession because the, that entire hunk of metal is turning. How much uh, aileron uh, You had to really uh, uh, fight it, the yaw from that. Yeah, so here we got a Yunkers J1. You know, we're used to seeing, uh, uh, you know, JU88 or 87, um, but this J1 first all metal aircraft to go into production. I don't know all that much about this one. Um, first flight in 1917, eh? So, uh, hey, look at this. You know, the airplane didn't have brakes. So if you wanted to do a, a run-up, you had to have people holding it back to stop it from, uh, from taking off. And uh, I guess it looks like it was taken as a, a prize by the Canadian soldiers at the end of the war and, uh, and brought back here. So here we got a Fokker DV, I guess D7, D7. Look how strange the uh, Yeah. Uh, what kind of engine is this one? Has it got a... Uh, it almost looks like a car grill. It's, a, uh, it, it's because it's a radiator, it is. Because it's a um, six-cylinder inline water-cooled. So see the thing on top there? That's your uh, where you pour in your water for your rad. It's also got some... Uh, very interesting camouflage. Eh? It's like a dazzle camouflage. It actually looks kind of colorful, but uh, I guess from uh, when you're uh, scanning the sky for it, you, you wouldn't be able to tell which way it's going. Okay, so we're a little out of our realm again, but uh, still it's a pretty cool exhibit. We're at the, uh, the exhibit for the R100. It was a uh, British airship. That came to visit our uh, our local airport uh, in Saint Hubert, Saint Hubert, uh, just south of Montreal. So when it came to visit, there was a mooring mast, big, tall, basically building with a tower on top, where the airship could uh, could dock, and then uh, people would come out uh, through the nose and uh, down the down the tower. So this was a. Uh, basically a dead end of technology, eh? It was, uh, uh, there was the R100 and the R101. Uh, they were both built by the British and it was supposed to be part of the uh, um, Imperial uh, uh, airship plan. Uh, there was supposed to be uh, airship ports here and uh, Karachi in India and uh, basically all over the empire. And it was supposed to join it together with these, uh, these airships. But the, uh, well, the R100 was actually su successful. It flew over here uh, from uh, UK to Canada, toured here uh, in, uh, what year was it? Uh, 1930. Came to St. Hubert, was quite a sensation here. 
and then flew back to England. Uh, I don't really believe it flew very much again because the uh, R101, 101 um, sister ship uh, ended up crashing, and uh, that was pretty much the end of the uh, of the Imperial airship scheme. And then, of course, everybody remembers the Hindenburg, the the German. Uh, German one that crashed at uh, Lake Lakehurst, uh, New Jersey. But, uh, I still do uh, think it would be pretty cool to uh, see one of these giants uh, uh, floating overhead. Maybe one day. Maybe. So here we've got the uh, radial engine. So uh, the difference between a radial and a rotary is that the, uh, um, the rotary, all the cylinders spin around, but the, uh, the radial... The cylinders stay where they are, and the pistons move up and down and turn the crank in the middle, which turns the uh, turns the prop. So, and what we've got here is a Pratt & Whitney R1340 Wasp. So, part of the uh, famous Pratt & Whitney Wasp family. Talk about that one a lot uh, in the uh, in the episode on uh, on cylinders, the quest for power. E, uh, no, that's a, that's a chipmunk, isn't it? Fairchild PT-26 Cornell. So what, what you got here, though, this is, uh, it may not be glamorous, but all these yellow aircraft were uh, part of the, uh, the, uh, well, it was the training program, the, uh, the British uh, Empire Air Training Program. So Canada... Uh, trained lots of pilots during World War II because we had a lot of wide open spaces, um, safe skies, and uh, we would uh, start the pilots off in, uh, in light aircraft like the Tiger Moth and then uh, move them up to Chipmunk. Chipmunks, Harvards, uh, that's an Avro Anson there for, uh, for twin engine. I think they did their uh, aerobatics training in Chipmunk and then moved over to the uh, Harvard and then uh, onward to the Mustang maybe. Yeah, well they would uh, complete their, their elementary training in, in this stuff and then, then move on to fighters, bombers, transports, that kind of stuff. What you got here is a link trainer, so a very early, uh, early simulator. So you'd go in there, close the, uh, close the top and uh, the instructor would work out over here and it would show where... Uh, scenarios. Yeah, it would, uh, you've got a map with a, uh, basically a moving unit on it to show where you're going. Uh, and you'd have your, your airspeed, your altitude, you could plug in winds, and uh, that's where they learned to fly instruments. All right, so um, one of the trainers here is a uh, North American Harvard II. Um, what'd you say the Americans called it? T6 Texan? T6 Texan, yeah. So I think uh, just before you headed into uh, real fighters, then uh, you would uh, train on this. Here we are at uh, some of my, my favorites. So the first one we got here is uh, the uh, BF-109. So... Uh, it's small. It, it was small. Very small uh, Did you know that this was the, the first fighter that Messerschmitt built? The uh, the previous uh, the yeah the the previous aircraft that the company made was basically uh, the equivalent of like a, a Piper you know it was a, a sport airplane 
Uh, and then uh, they went into building fighters and they built this. Uh, highly su successful, uh, flew out throughout the entire war. Um, it was a little bit, uh, a little bit obsolete at the end, but uh, they uh, couldn't really uh, kick the habit of using them. They, uh, they couldn't abandon them. Uh, now this one, see one time I was here with a group of students and uh, there was a tour guide around and uh, we were allowed to look around the aircraft and you could see bullet holes in it. Oh, yeah, back there? Right next to the Iron Cross. Yeah, right next to the Iron Cross. So the, I believe this aircraft was shot down in Russia and uh, ended up landing on the... Uh, yeah, it crash landed near the harbor city of Murmansk in uh, August 1942 was brought back here and uh, it's now sitting beside uh, a Hawker Hurricane and they're getting along uh, just fine. So the Hawker Hurricane here, um, if you listen to uh, my episode on that, it was kind of a, an in-between aircraft. The, uh, the back part of it was still built with kind of uh, uh, tube and, uh, and fabric construction. Front was, of course, uh, it was a bit of a P-40 look to it, yeah. Uh, except without the big uh, radiator bath in the front. Uh, it's got the radiator bit bath underneath uh, rather than right up on the nose. This, uh, this aircraft helped get them through the, uh, the Battle of Britain for sure, uh, along with the Spitfire. And then after that, it was relegated to sort of secondary roles. Um, and Hawker went on to try and uh, uh, update things with the... Uh, with the Typhoon and, uh, and others. All right, so here we've got the uh, Supermarine Spitfire, one of uh, a perennial favorite. And uh, I'll also include a picture of a uh, statue of uh, George Frederick Buzz Burling, one of uh, Canada's ace pilots. Um, kind of an oddball, actually. He uh, he flew in, he, he was one of those guys that just seemed to love war. Um, he flew in uh, World War II, and then uh, later on, he uh, was recruited by the Israeli Air Force and uh, ended up uh, uh, crashing en route there. So, interesting story, we'll, uh, we'll delve into, into him um, in a later episode, and we'll get more details on that. But uh, Spitfire, just a beautiful, beautiful looking aircraft. It's uh, uh, sleek, powerful. You know, it's, uh, it's not just a machine of war, it's, it's actually art. All right, so we're getting to some of my favorites here. So uh, we got the nose of uh, this Lancaster uh, showing all the, uh, basically the, the crew areas uh, within. So the... Uh, pilot navigator, where the flight engineer was, the bomb amber down the nose, wireless operator, and then, uh, of course, the gunners were further back. There really isn't as much room as the uh, B-29, eh? No, it's no. Quite tight. It was tight, yeah. Very narrow. And uh, as I talked about in my episodes on the uh, Lancaster, it was originally a, a twin-engine airplane, but they, uh, they uh, uh, swapped out the... Uh, the old engines and put in uh, four Merlins and you ended up... 
originally he, was the Manchester. He was the Manchester, and uh, uh, became the success that it uh, that it was. Uh, yeah. So you uh, basically because a night bomber it was uh, um, painted in dark colors. Dark and tan. Dark and tan. Yeah. So if you were looking from above. You would see basically uh, green and uh, green and brown, like the ground of uh, Europe. And if you were looking for from below, you'd you'd see the black of the uh, of the night sky. Um, yeah, bombers positioned down there uh, would also operate the nose turret. Um, and one pilot, right, with a flight engineer who could uh, put a seat down uh, on the just right seat. Pilot? Yep, just one pilot in the British system. And uh, the flight engineer was usually uh, given some training so uh, he could help out if he needed to. Um, but his seat um, uh, went up and down, and then you could crawl down through there to get into the nose. So here's one of my favorites. If you listen to my episode called uh, The Love of the Lancaster, uh, it really describes how uh, I first felt when, when brought uh, by my parents back in the day and you just see this this giant sort of crouching uh bird i mean it just it's a sort of uh uh drips with power and uh sort of danger ginormous uh bombay i'll uh, i'll include a picture but uh it was originally designed to carry two torpedoes um and then ended up being just loaded full of whatever the British could, uh, could fit in it. Um, blockbusters and, uh, of course, the uh, tall boys and finally the, the Grand Slam bombs. Um, we'll have an episode later on that deals uh, with all those different uh, ordinances. Um, this one here was built in, uh, in uh, Canada, actually, uh, Mark 10, built by Victory Aircraft in Malton, Ontario, and uh, it uh, never actually uh, saw, uh, never shot any, uh, never fired any guns in anger, never dropped any bombs. It flew over to England, but the war was over by the time it got there, so they turned it around and brought it back, and now here it is, um, a survivor. Um, now Canada does have uh, a flying survivor, uh, Vera of the uh, uh, the Warplane Heritage Museum in uh, in Hamilton, and uh, it's uh, quite a treat if you're ever in that region, uh, Niagara Falls, etc., and you see the uh, see Vera fly overhead and hear those uh, those four Rolls Royce Merlins. So we're walking around to the back of the of the Lancaster, and just think about how lonely it is back here way back it's like a long walk to get to where everybody else is up in the uh up in the front but you got your four uh four machine guns back here um there's the little chutes for where the uh the uh spent cartridges dump out dump out the back yeah so here we got a dc3 um definitely could be considered a warbird um cargo troop carrier paratroopers um yeah c47 um 
known in, in the British uh, services as a Dakota. Um, yeah, glider tower, uh, bring the wounded out. So, uh, and it just, it look, even though it's an old airplane, it looks like a, it looks modern, you know? It looks like a, the, uh, the beginnings of real modern airliners. Yeah. And over here, we got a Boeing. So it's a Boeing 247. And uh, you know what? I'll take a picture up close uh, around the nose there because if you uh, if you look at it and squint, you you can see the uh, the uh, the DNA of uh, of a B17 there. Um, the uh, the cockpit uh, arrangement looks uh, very similar, but of course the 247 was a uh, was an airliner, uh, not a warbird. Here, come check this out. It's one of my favorite engines here. So the uh, Napier Sabre 7. So uh, what it's you got long. here? What's that? It's quite long. Yeah, well what you got here is, uh, uh, it's called an H engine. So you've got horizontally opposed cylinders up here, and then another bank of them down there. Uh, how many cylinders in total? Uh, so 24 cylinders. It's a Flat H liquid cooled supercharged sleeve valve. So produces uh, 3,055 horsepower and uh, burns 112 gallons per hour. So it's a thirsty beast. And you see down here, this is where the, uh, the two banks of uh, pistons were geared together to the uh, to the to the front here to the to the prop and uh, this powered the uh, Hawker Typhoon well this is a, uh, a Lysander um, made by a company called Westland and it was basically the helicopter before before they were helicopters so uh, crazy strong landing gear um, you got the short takeoff and landing wings you see you got uh, you got slats, you Looks got, like a beaver. yeah, you got, uh, very big flaps. And this thing was for landing, uh, you know, landing behind enemy lines and dropping off, uh, secret agents and, uh, and, uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, patrols, um, that, that sort of thing was what the, uh, Lysander was for. So the fairy swordfish. This one's a funny aircraft. The thing looks ancient. It looks like it did not belong in World War II at all. Biplane, fabric wings, you know, uh, uh, got the struts in the wings, got the kind of steampunk looking torpedo underneath. However, it was effective. They used it to, uh, to sink the, uh, the Bismarck and also to attack at the Battle of uh, Taranto. Toronto, not Toronto, but they called it the string bag. Now, originally, I thought it meant um, because of the strings in the uh, in the wings, but I guess a string bag was a thing that a uh, a woman in the 1940s would uh, carry her groceries in. So it meant that it could carry anything. 
So it could carry bombs, depth charges, torpedoes, whatever you wanted to uh, take from an aircraft carrier and drop on, on somebody, it could carry it. And that's why it was known as the string bag. I'm looking forward to doing an episode on this one. Yeah, so this is the, uh, the Henkel HE-162 Volksjager. So it's basically the people's fighter. So this was uh, basically designed and built near the end of the war. It has a, uh, a turbojet engine on the top there, one, on the, on the dorsal area. Um, made of a lot of wood, so you see over here the, uh, the wings and uh, fuselage are made out of plywood and it's kind of, the paint is kind of flaking off. Um, it was designed to be fairly simple to fly so that like anybody could fly it, so you could basically put air cadets into it. But it turned out that it was actually more difficult to fly than uh, they expected, and uh, it wasn't all that successful. Yeah, it is. It's a Ram Air turbine, actually. So yeah, we've arrived at the Messerschmitt Comet, um, ME-163. So this one always makes me think, uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. So a uh, rocket plane um, designed to take off. Uh, burn its uh, two hyperglolic uh, fuels. So these are two fuels that uh, when mixed together would instantly burst into flames and uh, provide the thrust. That's if it was like all controlled and didn't blow up uh, on takeoff or uh, more commonly blow up when landing. And uh, it was basically designed to uh, fly up uh, high, uh, get up to altitude, and then it was a glider and uh, carried a couple of cannon in it to uh, knock down a bomber. So it carried two 30 millimeter uh, Mark 108 cannon and um, fly up, find a bomber, knock it down, and then come in for a landing. Now, the funny thing about the landing was that uh, it dropped its wheels after takeoff and would land on this skid. So basically just on a, in an open field. So uh, pretty much a crash landing. Uh, as I say, desperate times, de desperate measures. And uh, I wouldn't want to fly it. So we just came to this uh, the David Charles Abramson uh, Memorial Trophy. I always, uh, I always stop when I come to the museum to, uh, to basically pay my respects to this uh, trophy because um, it's given to a flight instructor who has uh, basically um, uh, promotes excellence and commitment to safety and flight instruction. So that would be good on its own. But the other thing is I knew David Abramson. I was doing my, my training as a, a private pilot um, when he died in a training accident. It was basically a spin training uh, over uh, uh, Lac Saint-Francois, uh, back near Cedars, where we, uh, where we took off from. That's where the flight school was, where we, uh, where we trained. And uh, he uh, got into a uh, spin that they could not recover from and went into the lake. Um, his student managed to survive, but unfortunately David uh, did not. So uh, it's, uh, it's a reminder to us that uh, as pilots we always have to be, uh, keep safety in mind. Always have to be careful because uh, you want to learn from uh, 
You want to learn from the mistakes of others because you can't make them all yourself and survive. Now, this podcast is mainly about warbirds, so um, let alone, uh, you know, we think about the the pressures of uh, training during wartime. Um, Go, go, go. And uh, they lost a lot of people in training. And then, of course, heading off into combat where uh, you'd be facing uh, bullets and flak and, you know, just the operational dangers of of flying in that kind of uh, environment. So, uh, as I say, we always, uh, we always stop to pay our respects here to David. So Liam just asked me, what no uh, Mustang? Now, we're now over in one corner of the museum. It's all been uh, boarded off. And uh, this is where the Mustang was. I think there was also a Sea Fury over here. Um, so I guess they're not here for whatever reason. You know how museums move things around. And uh, also this museum has another hangar with... uh, I mean, they can't display everything. So they have another hangar with other stuff in it. So I guess that's where it is now. Um, I know they have a... I've been in there once because you have to go in by special arrangement. And uh, I've been in there once. And I know they have a mosquito there. And... uh, uh, other stuff so uh, maybe we'll get in there one day we'll come back and do another uh, another episode and soon after that we were taxiing out to the runway for our departure home although we were thinking of the tasks required to fly back to Montreal our minds were also filled with the memories of those classic warbirds and of the men and women who designed and built and flew them At this time, and as a former flight instructor with a son learning his craft as a commercial pilot, I especially appreciate the effort it took to train those thousands of guys under such pressure and not always the best circumstances to fly those warbirds and send them off to the killing skies of Europe and Asia. I especially hope you enjoyed this fly-out field trip because if you did, It'll give us the excuse to fly out to some other Warbird Museum, maybe even to the States at some point, once we get this COVID under control. Thanks for listening. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.